Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. The Eden Mills Writers Festival and the Bookshelf are pleased to present Allison Wearing's award-winning one-woman show, Confessions of a Fairy's Daughter, Growing Up with a Gay Dad. This is happening at the E-Bar in Guelph on Friday, May 23rd. Based on her best-selling memoir, Wearing's compelling show tells the story of growing up with a gay father in the 1980s. Balancing intimacy, history, and downright hilarity, this is a captivating tale of family life, deliciously imperfect, riotously challenging, and full of life's great lessons and love. This all-ages licensed performance of Confessions of a Fairy's Daughter takes place at the E-Bar, located at 41 Quebec Street in Guelph, on Friday, May 23rd at 8 p.m. sharp. Tickets are now available at the Bookshelf Bookstore, also located at 41 Quebec Street, or online via ticketbreak.com. And for more information about the show, visit EdenMillsWritersFestival.ca. The E-Bar is not a fully accessible venue. Creative Control with Vish Khanna. A couple of weeks ago, my cat had this pus dripping out of his eye, and then it switched to the other eye a couple of days later, and, you know, we treated it as best we could. We put some water in there, some drops of water. He didn't like it, but it seemed to help. And then this week, I developed pink eye. I got conjunctivitis, and I went to the doctor, and he told me. He's like, yeah, you got pink eye, and he um, prescribed some antibiotic drops for you. And I said, well, where do you get pink eye from? I don't even understand. He said, oh, you know, it's a virus. You get it from all sorts of places. I'm like, you know, my cat, my cat Gary had pink eye. I think he gave me the pink eye. And the doc says, ha, that's, that, I never, I don't think that's, I never heard of that. But something, something in his eyes told me he believed me. I think he, he, he knew. I think my cat gave me pink eye. Does anyone have any experience with this? I think my cat gave me pink eye. That's where I'm at right now. Owen Pallet's on the show. Old pal. We've known each other a little while. He's got a great new record coming out on May 27th. It's called, uh, in conflict, and it's uh, it's wonderful. We're going to talk about it, and also you should know Owen's playing the Salarosa in Montreal on Friday, May 9th, and he's at the Danforth Music Hall in Toronto on Saturday, May 10th, and a bunch of other tour dates to follow. He's uh, in Arcade Fire, so they're keeping him very busy, uh, but uh, he's doing the best he can to play shows when he can. He's a good man, thoughtful guy. We we got into a lot of interesting topics, so here it is: myself and Owen Pallet, and uh, you know, protect your eyes. Stay away from my cat. Control, control, control. 
Hey, this week's episode is brought to you by Pizza Trocadero. For my money, the best pizza you can eat in Guelph, Ontario. A proud, independent family business run by a punk rocker, Trocadero only uses a rich array of fresh ingredients cut by hand and homemade dough made daily, all baked to perfection inside of a stone oven. It's gourmet panzerotti, calzones, wings, salads, garlic bread, breadsticks, and oh man, the pizza, the pizza. Personally, I like the gourmet Domateo with goat cheese, artichoke, roasted red pepper, mushrooms. I sub out the turkey breast for eggplant, but that's just me. Wash the whole thing down with a brio. Man, I am getting hungry just talking about this. Call Pizza Trocadero at 519-829-2444. Visit them at 7 Municipal Street in Guelph and online at trocaderoguelph.ca. T-R-O-K-A-D-E-R-O-G-U-E-L-P-H dot C-A. That's Pizza Trocadero, a place of the good trade. Pallet is a tremendously gifted multi-instrumentalist composer and singer who currently lives in Montreal. Pallet was initially acclaimed for his string arrangements for artists like Jim Guthrie, Arcade Fire, Fucked Up, and many others. And, particularly when he lived there, he was viewed as a true leader and champion of Toronto's underground arts community. Since releasing his own music, Pallet's profile has risen considerably. He was recently nominated for an Academy Award for his work with Arcade Fire on the score for the Spike Jones film Her!, and he has also touched a nerve with his critical essays of contemporary pop songs for Slate. Pallet's fourth album is a stirring and complex one called In Conflict, which is available in Canada on May 27th via Secret City Records. Here now to discuss it further is Owen Pallet. Hi, Owen. How are you? I'm great. How are you doing, Vish? I'm very well. Where in the world are you? Uh, I'm in Columbus, Ohio, mm-hmm. in a hotel. <laughs> and what brings you to uh, Columbus today? Well, uh, Dan Beckner is strangely here with his new band Operators, and so last night we went out and had some of the best Szechuan food I've had in my life. Oh, well, that sounds pretty cool. You're in a new band. Are you in? You're, I take it you're in the band, or did you just travel to Columbus to have some food and watch them? No, no, no. Uh, Arcade Fire are on tour, and uh, Dan's band Operators is recording here. So we just kind of had happened across paths. Oh, I see. I see. Okay, that makes sense. Mm. Um, now, you once told me that you really appreciated seeing photos of my son on Facebook, and I always thought that was really sweet. You were very thoughtful, and you were like, it's sweet to see him, and I like that. But uh, there's, <laughs> <laughs> there's a few references on your new album uh, to children, sons and daughters. I think the ages five and six are brought up. And yet on the opening song, you sing, I'll never have children. And I'm curious about the idea of parenthood and what it means to you. Well, first, it's really important to distinguish, especially with my songs, it's really important to remember that, like, what I'm singing in a song is not necessarily the whole truth, you know? Like, it's not, 
entirely the actual opinion of me personally, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but that that song is is kind of meant to be a bit of a, a sad, tacit acknowledgement of the um, impossibility of me to actually, you know, have what you have with uh, the tools that have been provided to me. Do you see what I'm saying? <laughs> yes, I do. Yes, I do. And it's not at all meant to... Um, it's not at all meant to suggest that an adoptive parenthood is any in any way less loving or productive or meaningful than a biological one at all. Um, but just kind of like came at a moment when I was frustrated that, you know, such an arrangement would have to begin with administration as opposed to, you know, um, drinks or whatever, <laughs> however you guys did it. Um, <laughs> right. Uh, so, uh, you know, I mean, there's just a certain level of sadness there and um, more of an acknowledgement of the biological imperative um, and also meant to be a bit of a statement toward of support and sympathy and um, uh, compatriotism to other people who, by choice, or for other biological reasons, have uh, entered into a child, have decided upon a childless future. So it was, it's essentially a, sort of a biological assessment of your. St- and again, I do appreciate that you are. These are narratives. These aren't necessarily uh, your feelings and perspectives. But I do think that that's a. That's a very. I, I found that to be a very powerful lyric. I'll never have children. And I know that what you're saying is that it's it's almost like a biological assessment. But for you. I, I gather you're someone who who appreciates and loves children. I mean, some people would say, yeah, who doesn't? But you seem to have a longing, maybe, for children? Um, it's, it's getting a little personal, but I certainly um, have found myself uh, very much uh, enjoying the, the, the nieces and nephews that um, I'm getting my life. And uh, there are some days, too, when I'm, I can't, lie like I might be feeling a little low and then just the thought of the children and husbands and wives of my friends have you know really pulled me out of that low place so mm-hmm. yeah I think I think kids really uh kids are awesome I mean <laughs> I've always I've always loved kids so yeah okay no, but no. I mean again again this is like this is this is uh the whole one of the things about this record is that uh that I noticed when I was writing these sort of semi-autobiographical or at least self-referential songs um, was that I wasn't necessarily agreeing with or identifying with the person who is writing everything at all the time. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. I might write with something one day and then come back to it a week later and neither recognize the person who I was writing about or the person who is writing it. Like I would feel very dissociated from different mental states at different points in my life. Um, and this sort of association is meant to be kind of a bit of the topic of the record, is that these songs are coming from very different places and very different people, despite the fact that um, this is ostensibly the first record that is like semi-autobiographical or actually basically autobiographical. Okay. So, and, and I know that you've said that In Conflict as a record is an investigation of quote-unquote insanity, but also that liminal space of, I believe, liminal space between, or of interpersonal relationships. And at one point in On a Path, you sing about standing in a city you don't know anymore, 
And I see that as transitional. And I'm curious, is part of this, I suppose, cerebral transition you're addressing, is is part of it about coming of age or adulthood as well? Well, On a Path was specifically about a, a feeling of dysphoria of place, like um, being in this in being at home and yet feeling not at home. Um, times that you felt like, I mean, the two times that I felt that in my life were as a teenager or more specifically revisiting my teenage, uh, my teenage house as an adult and feeling completely out of place. And then more recently being in Toronto in my thirties, um, the disappointment or sort of, um, you know, disconnectedness that I was feeling was not necessarily related to a change in either of those places, but just um, a change. Of course not, because I mean, Toronto really hasn't changed, or at least has changed by degrees, um, but rather a change in me, you know, and uh, a, a change where I am. Hmm. Um, so that that's really what On a Path was meant to do, is to kind of like draw some lines between, um, you know, uh, leaving home when when you're a young adult and then requiring to leave a city when you're entering your 30s in my case because you feel like you've kind of run out of run out of a uh, breathing room or run out of land to walk on or something sure and and, um, my case, and I mean I, I wrote this song before I knew I was going to leave Toronto too um I left Montreal like or left for Montreal maybe a couple two two or three months after I actually wrote that song um, but, uh, yeah, it was very much, the leaving was very much a product of what is described in that song. Yeah. Perhaps the song or you yourself were willing yourself to move. Maybe the song was telling you something about what you needed to do. Well, yeah, I mean, I hadn't, it was really like a kind of an instant thing. Like, I mean, it was just suddenly suggested, Hey, like, why don't you move to Montreal, uh, for a few months or permanently and just see what it's like. And it was in the middle of the winter, and I, I'm, I'm like in a rare breed of person who loves Montreal winters. Yeah. And uh, so, because I love the snow and I like skiing and sledding and all that shit. So, uh, you know, I went up there and had such a good two-month period, January, February 2013, that, you know, I just called called Justin in, <laughs> in Toronto and said, hey, I'm not coming back. Sorry, buddy. <laughs> so... <laughs> Okay, well, I, I do, and I don't want to dwell on it too much, but I do see this discussion of sanity and uh, liminal space and change as being connected, as being kind of uh, so, uh, some sort of acknowledgement of self-consciousness, because that, that, sometimes that, that happens to uh, people say, don't overthink things. Um, and I, I feel like the subtext of that is always, you're going to make yourself crazy if you overthink what you're doing. When I listen to the record, I feel like that is an underlying discussion of what we perceive to be a normalcy or, or, or sanity, I suppose, versus what is just the way, versus the way we evolve as people, which is reacting to change. And whether it's tragedy or joy, all of this affects our sort of mental state. And I feel like part of that, am I wrong? Is part of that captured on the songs on this album? I suppose so. I mean, I, I tend to very clearly try and keep my, um, for mostly social reasons, actually, I try and keep all of my um, acknowledgements of uh, kind of uh, strange moods or whatever you want to call them as being chemical, you know, as opposed to being uh, reacting to stimulus and hmm. treating, 
treating them too as gifts as opposed to, um, you know, uh, I don't know, something negative, which isn't to say that, you know, that alcoholism or whatever is not devastating to one in one's life. But um, when examining the experience to derive positive uh, inspiration from it as opposed to negative inspiration, yeah. if that makes any sense. It does. It totally does. Yeah. Okay. That makes so, sense. Yeah. So, so, I mean, we, yeah, it's, it's, it has a lot of the stuff that I'm singing about and a lot of the times that I was making this record, I was going through a period where I was kind of sacrificing my own psychic well-being. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I was very resolutely trying to draw from draw from the the, the manic experience and 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 uh, turn it into into good work right speaking of good work uh you know you've made some i suppose you've made some news recently for your writing about music and there was a fleeting point there was a point in my life where i had this fleeting notion although it seems to have lingered where i thought that perhaps musicians were the most qualified to write music criticism they knew the process they knew the practice and over time that's that opinion has softened it, it seems snobby on my part but now here you are a very accomplished musician uh, someone who knows music very well you're you're sort of dissecting these these pop songs what do you suppose is the relationship between uh, music criticism and people who make music is is this something that people that you feel like musicians should be doing more of having open dialogue about other people's work? Well, I think that it's important to uh, recognize that the term musician is kind of like the term white people. Like you're describing a lot of people with a lot of people back, a lot of different backgrounds, you know? Um, and it's, it's kind of like, you can't make generalizations like that without sure. kind of examining exactly what you mean. And I think what you mean is people who have more of a background in being trained about interpreting, you know, the numbers behind music. Mm-hmm. And this has been, this was the argument made by, uh, Ted Joya, who wrote the Daily Beast article that kind of inspired the series where he was asking for music critics to have more of a musical theoretical grounding in but in approaching their music writing um now i wholly 100 percent disagree with ted which isn't to say that i don't think that it's it's I, I that sometimes it's cool to have that background and i tried to kind of like examine that with those slate pieces but i mean the beautiful thing about music writers is that all they need to be good at is writing they don't and listening you know they don't need to be able to tell you what key a song is in right. um, or what, what tempo it is, you know. Um, they don't need to be able to identify these things. It's, it's, they're, they're certainly, in fact, without those tools, they're better equipped to kind of comment on the, the so-called layperson's experience of what this music is. And in a way, that's kind of a great translation tool for musicians who many of us are required to at least have like a very basic working understanding of how Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Music works, whether or not it's in a sort of a Western music theory way, or if it's kind of just a, I know how to use Ableton kind of way. Does that make sense? <laughs> it does. I, 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 don't, I haven't read Ted's piece, so I don't know if he makes arguments about other fields is that something he does where he suggests does he ever does he talk about um like you wouldn't ex- you wouldn't accept climate change evidence from someone who isn't a scientist or something does he make that kind of argument um basically yeah well he begins by talking about a sports analogy and talking about how you know sports co- commentators are usually you know athletes but i mean sports is is much more of a science than an art you know i mean compared to music for sure hmm. Um, these pieces were meant to be a, a bit of response to Ted saying that, yeah, we, that kind of, we can have it both ways. Cause I do think we can have it both ways. And certainly, you know, the internet has shown us there's endless, endless numbers of music blogs that dissect and analyze pop music, pop songs and, uh, on the terms of Western music theory. And in fact, that's any time, if you look at many conferences that are going on now, they're kind of equal parts, or at least one third of the pieces are about records. You know, they're about records and pop songs. Mm-hmm. It's not, it's not as if the pop is absent from the academic dialogue, but I mean, the thing that you have to remember is that pe- pe- when you're writing for slate, you're not writing for people who know about music theory necessarily. I mean, some people may be, but that's not really the audience. You can't just start, you know, talking about, you can't just start using chords, <laughs> chord structures and score paper necessarily, you know? And I mean, I kind of touched on it just as this kind of like way of kind of like, well, like warming the tub a little bit to maybe immerse people in it a little bit. But I mean, it's pop writing. It's meant to be for people who don't know those things, you know? Well, it was interesting to me that before Slate, before these pieces were sort of ascribed to Slate, I mean, I've been following you on social media for some time. That sounded creepy, but you know what I mean. Um, and we, I, both, we follow each other. We follow, that's right. It's totally mutual, mutual creepiness. It's consensual creepiness. That can be the name of our comedy duo, <laughs> mutual creepiness. <laughs> but I do know that you tend to, more than some of us, I would say you maybe elevate the idea of a post. I mean, so you posted these rather long essays as Facebook status updates, essentially. And then people reacted to them, and it started discussions. And you have a tendency to do this. You, and I'm curious: is do you feel like part of this impulse also came from this idea of maybe elevating our social media discussions? No, not really. It's just a kind of. I, I would love to get involved in more music writing sort of stuff. It's just that um, the uh, it's just clickbait, man. Clickbait. The currency of clickbait is is. Uh, is is it difficult to make you want to move outside of the sort of private forms of uh, discussion, like mm. message boarding or uh, Facebooking and stuff like that? Even these slight pieces were kind of, you know, people were interpreting them or they were repositioned as clickbait. You know what I mean? 
to me, it actually seems like you posted these things in as democratic a way as possible. You posted them on Facebook as status updates. So it wasn't like you were trying to cause clickbait or, or whatever, you know, like it wasn't like you were monetizing something. You just had an idea and it seems like you just picked the most easy, accessible way to generate feedback from your friends, supposedly, you know, on Facebook. And I think that was actually quite admirable. It felt more... And then for for us following the saga, when it got translated into Slate, it, it was felt... I don't know. I was proud of you, so to speak. It seemed like kind of a cool... You don't see that very often. Thanks. Well, I'm glad, I'm glad that that was the feeling that was generated instead of something else. Yeah, you know? yeah. I've, I've kind of... One of the reasons why I didn't want to continue with it is because... I mean, like I said, like music writing is something that I really uh, feel strongly about and really value. And I really love the work of really good music writers. And I don't feel comfortable in just kind of suddenly starting to enter into that field, you know, because <laughs> I'm just kind of because I just bring too much of my own baggage, my own expectation. And so I, I, you know, I mean, I've turned down the opportunity to write any more pieces, although I am reviewing a record for Talk House right now. Oh, great. Which is kind of exciting. Yeah, that's my, the new Tori that, Amos. The new Tori Amos record. I'm just in the middle of writing it. That's cool. The Talkhouse is the, <clears throat> the the Talkhouse is kind of what we're talking about in in a sense about musicians talking about music. This is, I believe, is it Michael Azarad's uh, initiative? I don't know. Okay, he's the one who seems. Yeah, to I be, don't know. I don't know anything about it. I've just clicked through on you know articles that my friends have written for it. Oh, okay. I've been like, wow, this is great. So. I'm having to step it up, actually, because, like, I mean, Nico kind of busted it, so uh, I got to really, like, <laughs> kind of, like, kick my own ass and and uh, make make this make this piece really good so I don't seem like a chump. <laughs> I'm sure it'll be fine. You, you do have this opinionated streak. Those of us who know you a little bit uh, know that you're very opinionated. Uh, can you, do you know where this streak is derived from? Is it your upbringing? Is it your surroundings in Toronto? Can you kind of pinpoint where this comes from within you to be like i have an opinion i am sharing it you might not like it i don't care here's what i think um no i don't really know where it came from i mean i i think it was identified really early when i was um in in hitting cameras you know joel actually kind of went on a tear about a terror uh, and, and, and was talking about what an abrasive person i was um but how that he appreciated it, um, which I kind of took at the time to be a bit of an abusive statement, you know, kind mm. of an isolating thing, and I, it kind of hurt me. Um, but, like, I've, I've come to accept it more and more that whatever, however you're going to brand it as insufferability or as arrogance, um, I think that it is it's somewhat valuable because I just uh, am feeling more often than not that, so many dysfunctional artistic relationships are caused by a lack of communication. Um, and so I've kind of started to just feel much more comfortable about being communicative. Um, and, uh, whether, and if that, if, if that's at, you know, the expense of me being perceived as like a cool dude, then so be it. You know what I mean? Yeah. You had the rare experience recently of attending the Oscars. And I know a few people who have done this over the years and, as someone who just enjoys pop culture, I'm just curious about insights about it. Did you have any interesting experiences? What was your take on, on actually attending and, and being there for that? Well, the uh, best part of the um, whole experience was the this concert that they had on the Thursday night where um, 
all the uh, Oscar-nominated composers from that year got together and conducted a concert of uh, incidental music from the scores that were nominated. So I conducted alongside John Williams and Alexandre Desplat wow. and um, Thomas Newman. And, uh, well, Stephen, uh, Stephen Price wasn't uh, one of the people who was conducting. He had um, another guy. Uh, what's his name? Oh, my God. Joe Trapunsky. Hmm. No, Joe Trapanese. Sorry, I'm confusing the chart guy I just had an interview with. Uh, <laughs> Joe Trapanese. <laughs> Joe Trapanese was conducting for uh, Stephen um, but yeah, and there was this great concert and, uh, a lot of the Academy, um, sort of like the older Academy members who are basically like legendary songwriters now in their eighties mm-hmm. were mm-hmm. there and giving speeches and it was really fantastic. I got to have dinner with Randy Newman and Burt Backrock and wow. John Williams was talking all night about, you know, Bernard Herrmann this and Igor Stravinsky that, um, cause he's an old dude. He's known a lot of. He's, he's seen a lot of things and known a lot of things, and it was just really fascinating experience. When the actual award ceremony came around, it kind of was, you know, it was fine. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever. It was the, cater- <laughs> the catering was good. <laughs> but uh, but this, the concert night was really the highlight. It was really just amazing. All the people from the music wing of the Academy, like, I mean, it sounds really strange to say so, but cause, because you would just think that the administrative side of things would be really dull and dry, but they were so welcoming and so sweet to me and the, uh, and, and Arcade Fire. So yeah, it was just a great experience. Well, between such experiences, your work with Arcade Fire, you are meeting more legends. Uh, you know, Brian Eno is on your record. You are, you know, you're meeting some celebrities. Does this, does that, it seems to me, you know, for people who have followed your, your, your work for some time, this is something of a cultural collision. How are you, does it impact you particularly? Are you excited at the end of the day to be like, oh my God, I, I had dinner with Randy Newman and Burt Backrack. Like, or is it just like, that? Ah, that's a thing? Uh, it's kind of a little more, uh, that's a thing, to be honest. Um, I'm, not, I'm not, so, not so good at meeting people that I'm not in the musical world that I'm not going to be working with, you know? Yeah. When Neil Young comes in to say hi or anything, I'm just kind of like, I'm not working with him, not a client. I don't really know what to say to him. So, <laughs> yeah. But I guess that's more of a symptom of me being a bit of a, a workhorse than, and not so much a social social butterfly. No, I relate to you completely. I, if I'm not interviewing someone, like if someone was like, hey, Bob Dylan's sitting over there, I'd be like, you know, I love Bob Dylan, but what am I going to say? You're great? Hi? I mean, that's not going to do it for me. I'd rather be like... You know, I'd rather work with them in some way or collaborate or have a conversation like this. So I totally... Right, exactly. I, yeah, I totally relate. Well, uh, Owen, what's uh, coming up next for you? I mean, this record's coming out. I presume you'll be touring uh, quite a bit. Um, are there any other projects or plans? You, you mentioned you would be writing a review for for the Talk House, which is cool, but is there anything else coming up? Uh, no, not really. I'm I'm kind of like trying to just figure out what I can do while on the road because arcade fire touring with arcade fire gives me enough days off that um it's good for me to find some projects that i can work on but while traveling um there's not a huge amount i can do i i when i'm composing i'm composing at the piano so um and there's no piano on tour but i do have my looping rig out so i've been really practicing making my making some new songs yeah, and you've got. I'm in a bit of a state of writer's block right now with new songs, but I think it's mostly just because I'm kind of on tenterhooks waiting for the record to be released. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, totally. So, 
And, and I mean, hopefully, when the record comes out, then I'm, then I'll one day wake up and just feel like the urge to write again. But right now, I'm just like, ah, I want to get these old songs out first. Right, and you've got. I mean, it seems like you've. I don't know how you're managing. You're putting out a record. I, I believe your Arcade Fire tour duties are not done uh, by the time the record comes out. Is that correct? Or no, uh, there's actually. I uh, this. It seems this year that so far we've only booked two months of sorry, three months of touring. Um, and that's May, July, and September, and they all come wedged uh, to the day between Arcade Fire uh, breaks. Oh, I so, see. Like I'll, play, like, I'll play a show with Arcade Fire, then get on a bus and meet up with my band immediately, you know? I actually have only had four days in my own bed this year so far, and I'm only going to have four more hmm. between now and October, so <laughs> it's pretty crazy. It's probably, I assume it's, it's a good... A, I, I assume it's a good problem to have. Yeah, I'm not... I... I'm not, it's not complaining is not the right word. It's just kind of acknowledgement of maybe a little too much on my plate. (laughs) Right. Well, once again, the new Owen Powell album is called In Conflict. It's available everywhere May 27th via Secret City Records, and you can learn more about it and his tour dates at owenpowelleteternal.com and secretcityrecords.com. Owen, before we go, is it possible for you to uh, select a song from your record for us to hear? Sure, yeah. Why don't you play uh, the title track, In Conflict? I will do that. Owen, it's uh, always great to talk to you, and I thank you for your time, and I wish you the best of luck. Thank you, Deesh. Great talking to you.
Hey, thanks again for checking out Creative Control with Vish Khanna. You can email me about the show at creativecontrol933 at gmail.com. That's creative with a K, control with a K, 933 at gmail.com. You can also follow our Twitter at Vish Creative, V-I-S-H-K-R-E-A-T-I-V-E. And you can also like our Facebook page. A version of this show airs on CFRU in Guelph every Wednesday at noon Eastern. And you can listen to that online at CFRU.ca or if you're in the KW region at 93.3 FM in Guelph. You can also sign up for the weekly mailing list for the podcast and the, and the show at vishkana.com and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. I believe that is everything I wanted to tell you. Thank you once again. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.